Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. My name is James Walner, and this is the second and final episode of The Man from Un. If you didn't listen to episode one yet, you'll need to go back and start there. That's my daughter behind the wheel of her car. She's driving us across the green and lush Swedish countryside. We're on our way to a small apartment in the middle of Sweden somewhere to visit Balochian friends of Sajid Hussein and Karima Baloch. Sajid, a journalist, and Karima, a human rights activist, both fled Pakistan and were living abroad in exile. Sajid in Sweden, Karima in Canada. They both highlighted human rights violations in Pakistan, and in 2020, just eight months apart, both were found dead in water. Sajid in Sweden, and Karima outside of Toronto, Canada. The year before their deaths, they had met at an apartment in Sweden, the place my daughter and I are now headed to. Along our drive, a slight rain introduces itself, and I stare out the window at farmlands and clusters of forests. I'll admit that when I started on this story, I didn't know much about Balochistan nor Pakistan. And if you're like me, you might benefit from a very quick and high-level summary of the area. Balochistan, with its dry desert climate, makes up 43% of Pakistan's land mass, but accounts for just 6% of the population. The geographical, strategic, and resource-rich Balochistan has a common border with Iran to the west and Afghanistan and Central Asian states to the north. Furthermore, it has a long shoreline along the Arabian Sea. Pakistan did not become a country until the late 1940s, when British rule came to an end there. The country was conceived of to be segmented off from India, a home for India's Muslims. But nobody asked the largely secular people of Balochistan if they wanted to be part of an Islamic state. Or if they were asked, Nobody cared much when these indigenous people, the Baloch, announced their intended independence in 1947. The next year, in March, the Pakistani army and navy took Balochistan by force. So really, Balochistan's freedom, after the withdrawal of British forces from India, lasted only for 227 days. And since then, there have been five armed rebellions in Balochistan and various political movements launched by the Baloch to regain their lost freedom or what some call the illegal occupation of Balochistan. The current struggle for a free Baloch state began at the end of the 1990s, and in 2006, things really ramped up politically after the killing of Nawab Akbar Khan Bukhti, a tribal chieftain and a former Pakistani lawmaker, interior minister, and provincial governor. Since then, there are reports of something called a kill-and-dump policy. The bodies of students, journalists, Baloch nationalists, and others critical of Pakistani's rule over Balochistan are reportedly found dead along roadsides and in mass graves. There are reports of abductions and killings of Baloch political and human rights activists. The number of killings fluctuates between a few hundred and 20,000, depending on who you ask. Today, much of the political movement for a free and independent Balochistan has moved out of the country to places like Sweden, France, and Canada. It's become increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to practice freedom of speech in Balochistan. Yeah, that's a good question. 
question. I was trying to figure that out too. All of this is on my mind as my daughter and I approach a medium-sized city in Sweden. We're going to meet a man named Taj Baloch. He too is from Balochistan and is living in exile in Sweden. I've arranged to meet Taj Baloch and his family to learn more about Sajid and Karima's lives and their deaths. As we approach our destination, an 11-story apartment building, I ask myself if I've done my homework here. The man we're about to meet, Taj Baloch, was obviously a friend of Sajid's. That much I had established, but what did I really know about him? And something was on my mind, too. Something told to me by Eric Halkier, chairman of the Swedish branch of Reporters Without Borders. In a large community with migrants, of course, you have informants within this group. So Sajid, let's say, as a journalist, always also had to be aware of all the other Pakistanis in Sweden, who they are, to what party they belong to, to what background they're coming from. And, and where their loyalties lie. When Eric had mentioned this to me, I considered how difficult it might have been for Sajid Hussain to know who he could trust. As my daughter and I climbed stairs in his apartment building, I found myself more and more eager to finally meet Mr. Baloch. But I'll admit, I was also a smidgen nervous. Still, any apprehension I might have had vanished immediately when I met Mr. Baloch and his wonderfully warm family. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome. Hey. We took the stairs. Aha! Like Sajid and Karima, Taj Baloch is living in exile. My name is Taj Baloch and uh, I'm from Balochistan, part of Pakistan. He fled Pakistan in 2006. First, he lived in Muscat, Oman, and in 2015, he came to Sweden, where he applied for asylum. Today, he is the director of a Swedish branch of an organization named Human Rights Council of Balochistan. Taj first met Sajid Hussain as a young man in the 1990s in Pakistan. Both men were interested in literature. They were book fellows, he says. Whenever I found a book, I read and gave to him, and whenever he found a book, he read and gave to me. We exchanged books, and... We almost met every day and discussed the books. As we've learned, after Sajid finished college, he became a journalist. And due to his courageous reporting, Sajid made a lot of political enemies. He wrote about prominent drug lords in Balochistan, for example. Taj says that at the time, Sajid was the only journalist who dared write about it. The, the journalist who was working on the, from Reuters, for Reuters, he was, when I met him in Oman, he said, I searched all the internet, all the newspapers. There was only one person who courageously wrote against them, and he was Sajid. But it was Sajid's work in regards to something called enforced disappearances in Balochistan that ultimately led to Sajid fleeing Pakistan for a life in exile. According to Amnesty International, Victims of enforced disappearance are people who have literally disappeared from their loved ones and their community. They go missing when state officials or someone acting with state consent grabs them from the street or their homes and then deny it or refuse to say where they are. Sometimes disappearances may be committed by armed non-state actors like armed opposition groups, and it is always a crime under international law. Amnesty International also states the following about Pakistan. 
Enforced disappearances have been routinely used as a tool by Pakistan's intelligence services since the inception of the so-called War on Terror in 2001 to target human rights defenders, political activists, students, and journalists, with the fate of hundreds of victims still unknown, according to victim groups and families. Taj Baloch and multiple watchdog groups say the number is in the thousands and mass graves have been located. Balochistan is full of young people who have no idea what happened to their fathers and mothers. There are people who are missing for more than a decade. Their daughters are grown up on the streets. They're still asking, where is our father? And there's no answer to that. When the United Nations made a visit to Pakistan to look closer at the claims of forced disappearances, Sajid Hussain assisted Reuters news service to follow the story. And that's when Sajid's problem began. By the way, ISI stands for Inter-Services Intelligence. ISI is the Pakistani Secret Intelligence Service. At that point, Sajid helped Reuters International to bring up the stories of the missing persons. So he was seen somewhere by ISI guys, and he thought they would kill him. Sajid realized he needed to flee Pakistan. This was in 2012. So he sent word to Taj, who was now already abroad in Oman. But of course, Sajid could not just send a transparent and unencrypted message, not with the possibility of ISI listening in. So he sent a type of code, you might say. He sent an email to Taj with a chapter of a book he was writing at the time. He simply wrote, Give it to my daughter when she's grown up, if I'm not alive. I sensed what is wrong. Taj helped Sajid get a tourist visa to Oman, and Sajid made his way out of Pakistan forever. Years later, they both made their way to Sweden, where, as we now know, Sajid died under quite mysterious circumstances. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. I asked Taj to help me put together a type of timeline for Sajid's disappearance. Sajid went missing on Monday, March 2nd, 2020. Our timeline starts four days earlier on Thursday, April 27th. Sajid was living in Stockholm at the time with a friend named Malik. On that Thursday, four days before his disappearance, Sajid took the commuter train from Stockholm to Uppsala, an hour away. It was this hefty commute that had Sajid looking for a new apartment in Uppsala, where he'd be working at the university. He wanted to live closer to work. On that Thursday, Sajid attended something called SFI classes. SFI stands for Swedish for Immigrants. That is, Swedish language courses for immigrants to Sweden. Sajid was learning Swedish in a classroom environment, along with other people. After his Swedish lessons, Sajid went to Uppsala University for a while, and then he returned to Stockholm to the apartment he was sharing with his friend Malik. The next day, Friday, February 28th, Sajid again takes the train to Uppsala for his Swedish language classes and then goes to work at the university. 
That evening, Sajid returns to Stockholm to the same apartment he shares with Malik. This is the last day that Sajid plans to commute between Stockholm and Uppsala. Starting Monday, he'll have a new one-room apartment. He won't have to spend over two hours a day commuting back and forth. On that Friday evening, Taj Baloch went to Stockholm for the weekend where he worked. He stayed with Sajid and Malik. On Saturday, February 29th, yes, it was a leap year, the three men hung out and discussed some new plans for Sajid's online magazine, the Balochistan Times. The next day, Sunday, March 1st, 2020, Sajid called a meeting of the editorial board of the Balochistan Times. Taj was present at that meeting. And he brought up a new plan to expand the work of Balochistan Times. He made some plans and he was thinking of some people to bring them inside the editorial board. In other words, as late as the day before his disappearance, Sajid was making plans for the future of his online newspaper. And this doesn't seem like a man about to commit suicide who is perhaps handing off his pet project to others. On the contrary, he was assigning tasks to himself, too. He took some responsibilities to himself to talk to the people and some responsibilities he gave to me and some to other friends. The next day, the day Sajid disappeared, was March 2nd, a Monday. Taj Baloch, Sajid, and their friend Malik were together until about 11 a.m. when Sajid left with his computer and a suitcase to go to Uppsala, where he had a new apartment to move into. Single room in Uppsala. He was excited about that. And Sajid did get the key to his new apartment, and he entered that apartment. Then he went silent. But it didn't take long for Sajid's friends to wonder if something was wrong because they stayed in more or less constant contact with each other. Me and Mehlab and Malik and Sajid, we were almost talking to each other 24 hours. We knew who is where, who is doing what. And by late Monday, nobody had been able to contact Sajid. On the other hand, it did happen occasionally that Sajid simply turned off his phone. He sometimes complained to his friends that they were all on their phones too much and social media too much. Sometimes he just went off the grid for a few hours. So I thought he switched off his phone and he wanted to relax himself. But in the evening, almost 8, 9, then it became a worry and I called Karina to inform the police. Maybe something is wrong. Because he has many enemies. He worked against Islamists. He was very outspoken. He was very outspoken against the military. He was very outspoken against the drug lords. So I thought if he would go somewhere, at least he will inform one of us to not be worried. So they turned to the police in Uppsala, who told them that Sajid would turn up soon and not to worry. But of course, Sajid never did return. But the Uppsala police did eventually look into Sajid's disappearance. In fact, I've discovered that they found some video surveillance footage of Sajid at a convenience market at a gas station near his new apartment. Sajid made a couple of small purchases at the market and then left, and there didn't seem to be anyone with him. Later, in his apartment was found his computer and a suitcase. It seemed as if he simply arrived at his new room put down his belongings, and then ran out to buy something quickly at that convenience store. But instead of returning to his room, he was found dead north of Uppsala seven weeks later. 
Sajid's friends dismissed the idea that Sajid might have taken his own life. When I asked if Sajid might have been depressed, Taj Baloch said, all of the Baloch in exile are depressed at some level, but they're used to it. It's simply a part of life, not a part of death. But he was not depressed to the level to commit any suicide. And if he was doing it, he would leave a note, don't f try to find me. He would leave a note. Because he knows a person may sing in Sweden, what it means for the other friends. Like, he will not, he will not torture us this way. And I talked to his wife to know what his mood was on the day he disappeared. She said he was very happy and very cheering. There's another thing that Sajid's friends find absurd when the topic of suicide is brought up. Apparently, Sajid Hussein's sense of direction was incredibly poor. I mean, really, really poor. As in, he couldn't even find his way around town with Google Maps. Taj and Sajid's friends reiterate this over and over and over again. How in the world would their friend Sajid have found his own way to Ulva Kvarn, the place north of town where he was found dead seven weeks later? They actually find it more likely that he was taken there by force than he found his own way there. Why don't we take a moment to consider that Sajid was perhaps abducted in Uppsala, taken to the river north of town, and then murdered, drowned by someone. If such a murder was a planned killing, the perpetrators would need to have some idea of where Sajid might be that day. The question then arises, who knew that Sajid would be in Uppsala on Monday, and more specifically, who knew he would be at that apartment? Did someone follow him from the apartment to the gas station where he was last seen? Well, you might say Taj Baloch knew, and Sajid's other friends, Malak and Melab, they knew, but here's the thing. Sajid's friends didn't even know where this new apartment was, exactly. No, we didn't know, because it was the first day. But there are people who knew. So who did know where Sajid would be? Well, for one, the person who gave Sajid the keys to his new apartment, whoever that person is. And how did Sajid find this new apartment? I mean, finding an apartment in Sweden is difficult in the first place, and Uppsala is a university town full of students who need a place to live. It's pretty hard to find a place there at all. Well, remember I told you that Sajid was attending Swedish language classes at SFI, or Swedish for Immigrants? Apparently, Sajid had found this new apartment through the help of a classmate at SFI. He once told me that he found the room with the help of a class fellow in SFE. But we didn't ask who the friend is, and we still don't know who he was. SFE will not give us the information who his class fellows were. Now let me tell you a little bit about my own experience of studying the Swedish language at SFI. I moved to Sweden in the late 80s and studied at SFI in Stockholm. Without a doubt, I can tell you that even for me, coming from a fairly diverse California, my SFI classes in Stockholm was the most diverse and ethnically rich and mixed group of people I've ever been involved with. Imagine a classroom of about 25 adult students, immigrants from perhaps 25 different countries, all in one place studying a new language. In fact, I do remember political discussions getting very, very heated and almost out of hand. 
These were discussions between students who come from countries that were at war with each other. As immigrants to Sweden, we all had that one thing in common. We were immigrants, but for some of us, that's where the common ground ended. In a large community with migrants, of course, you have informants within this group. So Sajid, let's say, as a journalist, always also had to be aware of all the other Pakistanis in Sweden who they are, to what party they belong to, to what background they're coming from. In case you're wondering, SFI, Swedish for Immigrants Organization in Uppsala, would not give me any names of students or instructors from Sajid's Swedish language courses. Remember how I told you I tried to speak with the Swedish police? They never did answer the phone. I spent two or three days in September attempting to make calls to both press contacts locally in the Uppsala region and the national number. Nothing. Not an answer, not a recorded message, just nothing. The Swedish police, at least the press context, don't answer the phone in Sweden. That's my experience. I did speak to an operator at some point who said he would connect me to someone, but that too just rang and rang and rang and rang. I then made an open records request, and I was informed weeks later that Sajid's file was confidential, closed, not open to the public. We don't know. We don't know what happened, and we will never know what happened exactly. This is Karina Jahani, professor of Iranian languages. I met her at her office at Uppsala University. She recalled that her first impression of Sajid was that he was very shy. Then, as I got to know him more and more, he was very sincere, very honest, conscientious, and very, very caring. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about work, of course, which was our first priority. But he also talked a lot about his family, about his care for his children, about his worries for his children, the worries for his wife, his hopes that they would soon come. And things went rather smooth for him. I also learned that Sajid had some personal family ties to politics back in Pakistan. I think he had an uncle who got killed in 2009, Ghulam Ahmad, who was a leader of um, a political movement. And what does Karina Jahani think happened to Sajid? We don't know. We don't know. We will never know. Maybe Karina is right. Maybe we'll never know what happened to Sajid Hussein. And maybe we'll never know what happened to his friend, Karima Baloch, either, found dead in water near Toronto, Canada. When I started on this story, The Man From Un, I had big ambitions about interviewing people in Canada who might have more information about Karima Baloch, her death, the investigation there, or anything, really. But despite my many attempts to get interviews with various people, I've struck out, and now I've run out of time. But even if I didn't learn much about Karima's death, I did learn a little bit about what Karima Baloch meant to the Balochian community. She was... Courageous. This is Malab again, one of Sajid's friends in Sweden. She was amazing. She was out of this world. 
she was love embodied she was intelligent and she was bold confident and she was so courageous she was my inspiration she was an amazing woman i have never seen a woman like her in my whole life but now sajid's friend krima bloch is deceased found dead in water near toronto but let me tell you about another friend of sajid's someone rather lucky to still be alive today the story goes like this Imagine if you will the country of Italy. It doesn't matter what your picture of it is really, just imagine a cafe in Italy. Now imagine a man sitting at a cafe in Italy, watching the pigeons in the square, sipping coffee or tea or whatever it is that comes to your mind. Now, please imagine that this man is from Egypt. Again, it's not important what he looks like in your mind. Just make your own mental picture of an Egyptian man in Italy sitting at a small table at a cafe. Now, set this mental picture aside. We'll need it again in a minute. Now, imagine the European port city of Rotterdam in Holland. Imagine a freighter ship coming into port from Pakistan. It's delivering salt, Himalayan salt. Now imagine Dutch customs officials inspecting the cargo and finding not so much salt, but instead lots and lots of heroin, 1,500 kilos of heroin. That's 3,300 pounds worth $55 million. This ship with the heroin was seized this year in February of 2021. Now imagine the enormous investigative activity that went into action when 55 million dollars worth of drugs were found. Imagine the chatter that erupted within the underground drug trade when 55 million dollars went lost to law enforcement. Imagine Dutch police and Interpol monitoring all of this chatter. <laughs> It is the investigation about all of this heroin that brings us back to that mental image of the man from Egypt sitting at the cafe in Italy. As part of the heroin investigation, Italian police intercepted some chatter there. An Egyptian man, whoever he is or was, was approached by someone, whoever they were or are, and he was asked to murder a man named Wakas Goraya. a Pakistani blogger living in exile in Holland a blogger very outspoken and critical towards the Pakistani government the military and ISI specifically Pakistan's secret intelligence agency i assume then that this man from egypt was some kind of hitman contract killer but what do i know all i know is what wakas goraya the man who was to be murdered told me when i spoke to him over an encrypted peer to peer communication line in september of this year We used an encrypted channel because he and his family are now living in an undisclosed location in Europe. Because once the Dutch police were informed about all of this, they went to work to protect him. They took it seriously, and eventually they thwarted an assassination attempt, at least an alleged one. The trial starts next year. That Egyptian man in Italy never showed up in Holland to kill Wakas, but somebody else did. Wakas Goraya's trouble in Holland began in February of 
When I caught up with him, he was putting his kids to bed, so the audio is a bit cluttered. Then in 2020, February, I was attacked outside my home. Then in May 2020, I was also warned by the European authorities that there has been a movement on European soil regarding my security, so I should be careful. He should be careful. The Dutch police started monitoring the situation, and sure enough, they were soon on to something. On June 25, 2021, police in the UK arrested a Pakistani man living in London named Mohammed Khan, 31 years old. He was charged in London on June 28 with conspiring with others unknown to murder Wakas Goraya in the Netherlands between 16th of February and 24th of June this year, 2021. In a preliminary hearing in October, he pleaded not guilty, and his trial starts next year. Todd Beloch points out that if a man traveled from London to Holland to try to kill Wakas, what's to say that someone did not travel to Uppsala to kill Sajid or to Toronto to kill Karima Beloch? Did the Swedish police look into all of that, the comings and goings of people to Sweden and Uppsala? Did Swedish police check the aspect or not? We don't know. Dear listener, isn't it funny how things go? This story started with my Scandinavian vacation and my desire to be reunited with my daughters, only to become about loss, about the loss of my childhood friend, and then the loss of a new friend I never met, Sajid Hussein, a fellow father, writer, and human being, a young man with a sharp lens on the world. With a very sharp eye, with a pathos for truth, He definitely wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know the truth about everything. And he wanted to know everything. As he said in his uh, uh, interview also online, if he, he said, I've always had a quench to know how things are, how things really work, not the surface of things. I want to know how things work deep down and how they really are. The philosopher Sokolowski would say that Sajid succeeded as a person because of his veracity. Sajid was a real agent of the truth, but it cost him. He wanted to know the truth and he wanted to reveal the truth at any cost. Now, of course, for him, the cost was exile, not seeing his family. And it possibly cost him his life. Why would someone risk everything for the truth? If Sokolowski is on to something, that our desire for the truth is what specifies us as humans, and that we fail as a person when we stop seeking the truth at all costs, then it becomes much easier to understand people like Sajid. Karina Jahani shared with me an anecdote. Her daughters would occasionally tease her for so passionately working to preserve a language like Balochi. Uh, we have three daughters. All of them joke with their mom and say our mother is uh, slightly crazy. She has invented a language that doesn't exist, a people that doesn't exist, and a country that doesn't exist. And she tries to teach people a language that doesn't exist and uh, convince people that there is a country that doesn't exist. This joke is only amusing because, like all jokes, there's a hint of truth in it. For Sajid and the Baloch, they must sometimes feel like they don't exist, that they've been cancelled, 
unrecognized, their human rights violations unacknowledged by the world, the men, the women, the people from UN. Sajid Hussein, Karima Baloch, and others who lost their lives in the name of the truth, they all knew that the day people stop reporting and asking questions will be the day freedom becomes extinct. But perhaps you feel the situation in Balochistan is extreme. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press will never be jeopardized in your part of the world. Perhaps you're thinking that the powerful nations of the world will help keep this all in check somehow, that you will always be safe and secure. I know I'm not alone when I say, perhaps you should think again. Perhaps you've heard about the Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi murdered inside of the Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey in 2018. He was living in exile in the United States in Washington, D.C. Yes, you heard me right. He was murdered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Effectively, a murder of a journalist by another state. The United States Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, concluded that the murder of this journalist was ordered by none other than the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. So you might think, well, the United States as a nation and other nations would take a hard stance on such blatant crimes and human rights violations, right? I mean, a murder of a journalist by another state? Not so. Both former President Trump and current President Biden have balked on taking a strict stance on Saudi Arabia. President Trump, true to his style, felt he knew better than his own agency and said the findings of the CIA were premature. President Biden, in February of this year, vowed that Saudi Arabia would be held accountable, then in November announced the U.S. would sell $650 million worth of arms to Saudi Arabia. Imagine if your wife or husband, sister, father, brother, or friend, whatever, was murdered by another state and the world knew about it and was doing nothing about it. Imagine how alone and powerless you would feel. One person who does not have to imagine any of that is Jamal Khashoggi's fiancée, Hatis Sengiz. Here she is speaking in November of this year at The Hague, Netherlands, at something called the People's Tribunal of Murdered Journalists. Audio is courtesy of Free Press Unlimited, the Committee to Protect Journalists and Reporters Without Borders. Now, I don't usually, and I suppose I shouldn't, but I don't know. Cancel me if you have to or have a problem with me sharing something a little bit personal right now. I can hardly listen to the following audio without imploding emotionally or something. This courageous woman speaking to the world, I don't know. I think it breaks my heart to hear one lonely and courageous woman speak out like this while the nations of the world sleep. That's my personal opinion, and as I said, cancel me if you want to, because the truth is, if we continue to silence or allow others to silence the people who are asking important questions, people like journalists and human rights activists, people like Sajid Hussein, I think we'll all be canceled soon. Here is Hatis Senges, widow of Jamal Khashoggi, Someone Sokolowski might call a well-oiled agent of the truth, using her veracity to do everything she can to fulfill her mission. In this case, she does it passionately, and it's not even in her own mother tongue. Um, it is very, uh, a very long story, but I can say uh, after uh, the murder, I, I moved to London um, to learn English. Uh, the time I wasn't know any word 
uh, English word. So I decided to start a new life in London. So because the politic and the social weather was very, very sad in my country, in my neighborhood when Jamal killed. So then I decided to move to London. When I moved to London, the, I was expecting that my life um, will be more normal day by day. Then uh, I learned that the, the Saudi side or Saudi people uh, following me in London. Uh, what I'm trying to say, my objective is here, danger, I was in danger, uh, still we are in danger because there is impunity and impunity encourage the another killers. The Crown Prince says I have immunity as a Crown Prince. He says I am head of the state or I am ha head of the country, but he wasn't. He's, he's not head of the country. And in this case, we, we cannot speak about immunity because it is against uh, humanity, I think. Um, someone killed and then they, they disappeared his body. And even, even the whole world, even you and your government and my government and United States and how many countries in the world, I don't know, but they know what happened to Jamal. And even though we do not have any real act against this killer because of money or because of financial interest, because of the another, maybe one, two, three, four. Hatice has been hailed as a human rights defender, but in her mind, she is not. She is just standing up for something in the way she feels anyone should. She didn't choose this. She's not looking for notoriety. She's just looking for the truth. So, so then, um, what you are talking about, what the human rights? For, for me, I'm not graduated from journalism or human rights issues. So they, the people call me human rights defender because of you, I, I become human rights defender. Because of your government, because of your politicians, because, because of international silence about this crime. Uh, it, it wasn't my choice, it wasn't my hope to being a human rights defender, maybe. Because I want to be a human being at first, then I can do another title, uh, like writer or thinker or human rights defender. But I thought that it's my personal um, responsibility to, um, to speak out about this case, at least to achieve something. But the, the real turn should come from the governments, from the, uh, should come from the rulers, from the leaders. As a conclusion, we can see now in Burton, for example, two, two three uh, weeks ago, um, uh, Saudi take over the Newcastle United as a support club. Uh, because there is a no real action, there, there is a no real, um, I mean, sanction uh, against him, himself. I'm not talking about the country, I'm, I'm talking about the, the person that, who ordered this killing. So then you, you can see everywhere everything you, will, will happen. You have to stop them, you have to stop him. You have to say you cannot leave your country. I do not accept you in my country. And then you can say, 
I will not do some business with you because of this crime. It is, it is very interesting. Um, everything is growing up to good things. For example, the technology and at the same time, the human rights and democracy or freedom of speech going down. We are talking about something very dangerous for, for humanity. So um, Jamal was reminding us the democracy in the Middle East and the freedom of speech. He kill, they killed him because of these values they, that he was talking about. First responsibly, all of us being human being, not being anyone uh, do not care about the essential things in our life, like job or money, you know, because if you lost your humanity, you cannot do anything. Thank you very much. How is it that the world sleeps when something like this happens? Eric Halkir of Reporters Without Borders shared this with me when I met him in Stockholm. No, I think Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, he was sort of he became sort of the, the symbol of attacks on press freedom and journalists, but they are copies of him all over the world. We have them here in Europe, we have them in, in South America, we have them in Asia and Africa. Politicians at high levels who don't hesitate to to attack journalists, pinpoint them with their names in live uh, transmission in global distributed TV channels <laughs> to, to sow some sort of skepticism and mistrust into media and this spreads like a wildfire. It's super dangerous. We need to have politicians that understand that they are elected because of pre-press. So they should be in any instant defend press freedom uh, because it's part of who they actually became who they are. Uh, so that's what we try to, to say in Sweden. I think that's the key. We will never ever have press freedom and safe environment for journalists as long as we have politicians not supporting press freedom and free press. Another speaker at the People's Tribunal of Murdered Journalists in The Hague this year was Irene Kahn. She is the current United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression. The of a journalist, of course, violates many human rights relating to the individual uh, himself or herself. Uh, but it also has a chilling effect on media freedom. It silences others and it, is, it affects the right of society to know. It is both freedom of expression is an individual right, but it is also uh, very heavily related to, to the society's right uh, to enjoy uh, media freedom. So I think the impact is enormous and, and very significant of uh, this continued high level of impunity. Uh, and the facts and the numbers, of course, speak for themselves. Between 2006 and today, uh, around 1,480 uh, journalists uh, have been killed. That means roughly a journalist killed every four days over the past uh, years. 
two weeks ago, uh, the special myself as well as the special rapporteurs of the OAS, the OAU, and the OSCE jointly launched a declaration in which we called upon politicians and political parties and senior state officials to refrain from attacking the integrity of media or of journalists. What we are talking here, on the one hand, is the increased uh, killings, and on the other hand, a lowering of public trust in the media. A toxic environment is being created. Another speaker at the tribunal was Kathleen Gallagher, Queen's Counsel, Human Rights and Media Law Specialist, London, England. An increasing trend which I'm seeing in my work is states attempting to silence their critics across borders, uh, so including online attacks, physical attacks, rendition and kidnapping, and threats of death on foreign soil and indeed deaths on foreign soil. Now, we see that in countries like Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia. So that extraterritoriality issue is a real challenge. And by way of example, I act for 150 BBC Persian journalists, so journalists at the BBC World Service, primarily based in London, and they face rape threats, debt threats, online abuse, harassment of their families back in Tehran, even though they live in London. And in my view, where you have an extraterritorial element to the case, and my view is that our systems really fail and are particularly poor at dealing with that issue. When you've got a journalist located in one place with the threat coming from another. There's fundamentally different legal issues arising and legal obstacles to navigate when you're considering a state-perpetrated execution such as uh, Iran's extraterritorial kidnapping of Ruhollah Zam and his execution in December last year, and situations in which state agents have colluded in a journalist's murder, for example, by leaking information about their whereabouts, or situations in which states have facilitated or encouraged an assassination by private individuals. In many cases, for example, an attack may come from a non-state actor, from a private individual, but the context is a climate of impunity facilitated by or fueled by the state. And we often see impunity afterwards. The bottom line is uh, journalists step on some pretty powerful toes in their line of work. And too often, those in power have minimal incentive to investigate, let alone pursue justice. There's an obligation on the state to create an enabling and favourable media environment. And if they fail to do that, that is something they must be held to account for. Even if they didn't pull the trigger, even if they didn't pay for someone else to pull the trigger, they are complicit in those circumstances. What will things look like if journalists become too intimidated or scared to report on things that matter? We only have to look at the region of Balochistan to answer that question. Remember that list of journalists that Reporters Without Borders got a hold of? The list of exiled journalists being monitored by ISI? I spoke with the head of the Paris headquarters of Reporters Without Borders to learn more about the list itself and how it came to be known. So my name is Daniel Bastar. I'm the head of the Asia-Pacific desk at Reporters Without Borders. Um, I'm working at RSF headquarters in Paris. Yeah, so very uh, concretely, I got an email uh, one day uh, a couple of years ago from, let's say, a secret account, underground account. Um, and this uh, contact said he was working for Down newspaper, which is a very, very trustful newspaper in Pakistan. And he told me that he got a leak 
from the ISI, the uh, Pakistani Intelligence Services, about a so-called list of six journalists and bloggers abroad who uh, should be targeted or, more precisely, should be taken care of. Daniel Bastaw uses his veracity to keep his lens sharply focused on the potential motives and agendas of others. And so when he received this leaked list, he considered why he had received this tip. Could this be misinformation, a ploy? Could the list have been leaked on purpose by ISI? And if the list was leaked on purpose, what was the purpose of the leak? Ultimate purpose would be that this list would be uh, published in the news so that everybody would think that these six journalists uh, should be considered as spies. And that is why when he published elements of the list, Daniel did not publish the names of the journalists in it. Because that would be the ultimate goal of those who leaked this, this information if this was leaked on purpose. Nor did Daniel tell me the names of the people on the list, although we did learn from Eric at the Stockholm office that Sajid Hussain was not on it. But I did speak with someone who is on that list. My name appeared in an internal memorandum that was apparently issued by the Ministry of Interior in Pakistan. This is Kia Baloch. He is living in exile in a secure place somewhere in Europe. That accuses me and some other Pakistani journalists uh, of, uh, of having been involved in anti-Pakistan activities in the West. And it calls on Pakistani agencies to monitor my, my social media activities and my movement. The similarities between him and Sajid are many. I am a journalist from Pakistan's southwestern Baluchistan province, and I have been practicing journalism since 2012. I started my career with the Daily Times, a liberal Pakistani newspaper. I cover Baloch militancy and forced disappearances and human rights violation in Pakistan's southwestern Baluchistan province. When Kia heard about the death of Karima Baloch in Canada, he was devastated. And he told me, for him, it's unacceptable that she would have committed suicide. It was a shock for me. Uh, she she was uh, such a brave activist who, despite uh, being a woman, fought against a powerful regime, a, a powerful uh, uh, authoritarian regime. Kia said that in a society where women are rarely allowed to participate in public life, Karima was very bold and brave. And uh, she, she always enjoyed telling the stories of Baluchistan to the world. Our youngsters, especially girls, learned so much from, uh, from her line of questioning powerfuls. She was a friend to so many people. And, uh, you know, Karima uh, was uh, such a brave and courageous person. So we will, as a person, we will definitely miss her presence. And, of course, as an activist, Karima will greatly be missed uh, in Baloch nationalistic politics. In the case of Sajid Hussain, Kia Baloch says it's difficult to understand what happened. Uh, you know, uh, Sajid was very special to Baluchistan. It was because of his professionalism and important stories he was telling the world uh, that, uh, that the powerful people in Pakistan did not want him to tell what he was telling the world. If, if, uh, if I say journalism is, important, is an important job in democracies, then in places like Balochistan, it's a much, much needed job. 
and Sajid was bravely doing their job. Uh, so uh, there were people who were unhappy with Sajid's uh, uh, courageous reporting on Balochistan. Uh, it's very hard to say, but whatever happened to him, he will never be forgotten. I asked Key about his life today, ever since his name landed on that list. The, the country where I live, I have received uh, overwhelming support uh, from the authorities of the host country where I now live. He says he can live a relatively normal life, although my perception was that although he can take a walk in the park whenever he chooses, and although he's not surrounded by bodyguards, he still sometimes looks over his shoulder. More challenging on a day-to-day basis is just the life of exile, being away from his home, knowing his social media channels are being monitored, and all of that. Occasionally, he gets a phone call from unknown numbers. If he answers the call, there's just silence on the other end. This is, uh, this is how my life has been in the, in the last uh, few, few years. I asked Kia what he thinks his future holds for him. Well, uh, 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 future, uh, at this moment, it's difficult to talk about the future. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but of course, uh, I'm optimistic things will be all right one day. So many journalists have been, in, have been killed in Balochistan for just doing their jobs honestly and, uh, and the untold stories of this, of this uh, bloody civil war in Balochistan is really merciless and has been eating our intellectual brains. So uh, if you ask about uh, my future, the, the way I have chosen, the path I have chosen to tell un- untold stories of Balochistan to the world is full of danger. So you never know where, where it can take you. This hurts. This really hurts when I come here and uh, I feel that I can't take him home with me. This is Sajid's friend Malab again. We're standing at her son's grave in Uppsala, Sweden. Her son died last year, as did Sajid and Karima. She puts three flowers on the grave, one for Sajid, one for Karima, and one for her son. Uh, When I go to my son's grave, I put three roses there. I always do that. A yellow rose for Rohel himself and a pink rose for Sajid <laughs> to tease him <laughs> and, uh, and a red one for Karima. Uh, so because she, we believe, we believe that she was symbol of love. She was love embodied Karima Baluch. The following poem, translated from Balochi to English, is written by Malab. She's one of few women poets from Balochistan. This poem is titled Suicide, but it's not about suicide. Rather, it's a refreshing play on words about the self-imposed death of a thought of suicide, if that makes sense. The refusal to give up. The refusal to just lay down and die. Every moment... There is a desire of death in Every moment, there's a desire of death in me that dies out and goes away. I am alone and alive. The world is a silent picture, and I am a lip-reading eye. Matters not how it perceives, but I read the life differently 
each time. You know, I've torn apart all the torments. I have picked apart and peeled off all of my pains, and I am naked and stark. I'm James Wallner. Thank you for listening to The Man from Un. I hope you too will continue to be an agent of the truth, to continue to expect and demand and seek the truth. I hope that in the name of humanity, we never forget our mission and we can use our veracity to keep humanity uncancelable. Because if you lost your humanity, you cannot do anything. You cannot do anything. You cannot do anything. Music in this story, The Man from Un, provided generously by Vassen of Uppsala, Sweden. That's V-A with two dots over the A, S-E-N, V-A-S-E-N, two dots over the A. Check them out on Spotify. Thank you, Vassen, for your amazing music. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.